You're listening to the Soul Source Podcast. I'm your host, Raquel Lamel, and Soul Source exists to share stories that are shaping our world today. We go straight to the source of the information to give you the best insight on topics and show you what's being done about these issues, as well as how you can help to make a difference. So buckle up, Soul Source Society, because we're about to get started. Just the, it's the attitudes of people, you know, their views of disability that are inhibiting people with disabilities. But also, I mean, just inhibiting progress in society. Hello, I'm Raquel Lamel, host of Soul Source, and today we're talking with nationally renowned and three-time Emmy-nominated journalist Allison Norleon. Now, if that name sounds familiar, you may have seen her on your local TV station, or you might have read one of her numerous articles in Forbes magazine. Either way, she's here to share an important message with us about something many don't know about her. Allison grew up with a severely disabled sister. She's taken that experience and uses her public platform now to educate others about those with disabilities and stand up for the voiceless. Regarding issues they're facing in today's society that many just don't know about. Allison, we're excited to have you here on Soul Source and talking about this issue, shedding some light on it today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, and, and I want to get right into uh, a little bit of your story and your background a bit. I mentioned, you know, your sister, but can you tell me a little bit more about what that was like growing up and kind of what you learned from that experience? Yeah, sure. Um, so like you said, my older sister is severely disabled. Um, I am six years her junior. And uh, she, just to give some background on her, um, you know, when she was born, doctors, I mean, my mom thought, you know, everything was fine. And uh, I think around one year old, my mom just started noticing that she uh, was not developing properly, um, or in the way that you would think a, a baby would develop. And so from there, you know, she eventually, they didn't officially they weren't able, I should say, to diagnose her with anything specific. They actually say she presents herself as someone with a syndrome um, with autistic characteristics, but they never actually, um, you know, gave her an official diagnosis, which, um, you know, speaks to the times, you know, she's 37 years old. And I guess back 37 years ago, it just, our science uh, was not as developed. So, um, so yeah, Becky is, like I said, she presents herself as having a syndrome. She has autistic with autistic characteristics. Um, you know, growing up with Becky, I was six, like I said, six years younger than her. So I was born into that life and I didn't know any better. She was my sister. (laughs) Um, You know, she was, I loved her, you know, regardless. And we played like sisters do. And we, you know, spent time together and I, we dance, my sister loves to dance. She loves music. And so like, I have fond memories from my childhood of us doing that constantly. Um, just dancing to like the various shows that we would watch together. Um, and yeah, I mean, I didn't know any better. To me, she was my sibling. She was my sister. And it was a normal, quote unquote, childhood. I would say once I hit school age, like when I was in second grade is when I first really started to notice that Becky was going to be treated differently than me. And when I really, when I truly realized um, <laughs> just I guess the complexity of society. (laughs) Um, So, and by that, and I can just give you an example of what kind of tipped me off to Becky's different and people are going to treat her differently was that I had, uh, I was in second grade and I had a a new friend that I had made in class and my mom and her mom set up a play date for us. And this girl came over my house and I will never forget, we were in the living room playing with Barbies as one would in second grade. Very normal. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and my sister, uh, she's vocal, but she's not verbal. So she makes a lot of noises, um, which, you know, so, and she, and she can be quite loud, but she, it's, 
she's just walking around, you know, making noises. And uh, she was doing that. She was upstairs watching some of her tapes and making some noise. And uh, this little girl, you know, I, I don't remember how the whole encounter went, but it was something along the lines of like, you know, what is that? And I said, it was my sister. We continued playing. And um, then my mom brought my sister down for lunch. And uh, she walked into the living room where we were and, you know, still making noises, kind of walking around. Um, and this little girl just started crying. And uh, yeah, and she just wanted to go home. And I, that was like the first friend that I lost and not the last uh, because of my sister. And so, you know, I, it was the first time, like I remember her leaving and just like, it's, it's so weird now as a 31 year old to kind of like remember the feelings that you had as a, you know, seven year old or however old I was at that time. Um, but I really do remember just the, the shock and just the, um, just not really understanding why that happened, you know, and, and, uh, and so, and just turning to my mom and my mom saying like, this is, you know, this is might happen sometimes, you know, people are not going to always understand, uh, who, you know, your sister, but it's, you know, we just have to make sure that we educate people and, and, you know, exposure is key. People need to learn about people with disabilities. Um, and so that really is what started my journey into advocacy. Um, wow. but into realizing that, you know, Becky was different and that, uh, I was going to have to fight for her. That's, that's awesome that you, you know, you took that road because it would be so easy too to be on the opposite side, opposite side as a kid and be mad, right? You lost a friend and instead you were like, no, this is my sister. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you said it kind of launched your journey there, but you're seven years old. So when did you start publicly talking about the disabled community and the challenges that they're facing? So I would say my advocacy in the beginning was more or less, um, you know, I would do a lot of runs and walks for like the autism society. I would, um, you know, I was very, very, uh, it was very important to me back in the nineties. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure how old you are, but the R word was like the thing, you know, to use the R word instead of the word stupid. And so it was like, every time I heard that word, I would immediately just shut it down, you know, and tell people to stop using it. Um, and it's kind of funny because, you know, I kind of fell into advocacy because of what was happening around me. So I would, you know, in middle school, I was uh, in a seventh grade English class and uh, we were reading this book, Flowers for Algernon. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a book, a lot of middle schoolers have to read, but there's a disabled character in the book. And after, while we were reading it, people in my class started making fun of people with disabilities and using the R word. And, um, I went home crying that particular day and I, but it kind of like what happened with this girl when I was in second grade, it infuriated me that people were doing this. And, um, so I ended up actually bringing my sister into school and having like a discussion. Like I did a presentation with my sister and my mom where I basically expressed, you know, how hurtful it was to hear those people, you know, using the R word and, and making fun of people with disabilities. And then I, I introduced them to my sister and I said, this is my sister. She was born, you know, with a disability that doesn't make her any less than you. And it's hurtful, you know, when you use that terminology, I probably didn't use that word back then, but you know, <laughs> um, and so, you know, and it's so crazy because uh, I actually recently connected with someone from middle school for something else. And this person said to me, he was in that class and he said that like changed his life and it changed his way, his views of disability. And he's like, 
after that happened, he never used the R word again. He would tell people to stop using it. Like, and it was just so humbling to hear that, you know, because when you're in seventh grade, you don't know what you're doing. You're just, you're kind of just going through the motions of what feels right. And like what you want to, you know, you're learning, everything's a learning process. And so to hear that, you know, some, a step that I took actually impacted someone's life was, um, was really, really, really crazy. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of like the, what I did as an advocate when I was a little kid. That's, that is awesome. Did you, I mean, did you see any immediate reaction from the kids in the seventh grade when you gave that presentation and brought your sister in or was it kind of, you know, like you said afterwards? To be honest, I don't really remember. I, I, I don't remember. So I really can't answer that. Um, I just, I remember I wasn't like the best with public speaking and remember like being nervous about it because and but like knowing that I really wanted to do it and I wanted to and on the flip side when this happened I also wanted to learn more about my sister like in her life because like she would go to a day program every day so like I'd go to school she would go to a program that was specifically for disabled um, people and so I wanted to learn about like what they did at her day program and how I could help her at home to you know help her whether it be learning, you know, whatever they were teaching her, help her improve whatever they, they, she was learning. And so I went to her program and I, you know, spent a day shadowing her with her occupational therapist and physical therapist and all these different people who she was working with. Um, just as a way to help almost, I guess, better myself, better my advocacy, learn more about, you know, how adults were helping her to, um, to learn. Oh my goodness. Very active young person you were. Oh my goodness. So now, you know, professional public platform, how are, what is it like for you to be using that and helping the disabled community? And, and why is that so important to you now? It's so funny, like to talk to you about this, because I'm going from like, you know, elementary to middle and now high school. Um, I was a junior in high school, and I had an English professor who essentially said to me, uh, you know, you're a great English student, but you have and this was after a project presentation. Um, he was like, you have a great presence about yourself and you also have this like advocacy, this nature of advocacy that you should really think about going into journalism. And like that, after he said that, I remember I, I went home that night and my mom was like an avid news enthusiast and she always had the five o'clock news on. And I remember turning to her and saying like, I'm going to be a journalist. And so that's what really began the journey. And so I went to Rutgers University in New Jersey. I'm from New Jersey. Um, majored in journalism and media studies, interned five times in college. And my goal throughout all of this was like, I want to provide a platform for people with disabilities and just anyone who is considered other, because throughout this whole journey, uh, you know, of advocating for my sister as a kid, I, I became extremely sensitive to like everything, whether it be, you know, issues, the minority space in America issues, um, obviously, the people with disabilities face and issues that anyone considered other in this country. Um, it really, I, I think, like when you have a disabled sibling, you just you become automatically empathetic towards everyone's plight. <laughs> and so it really, you know, it just became this this drive and this um, mission for me to speak for the voiceless. Period. Like I want to change society. I want a more progressive society, and I want to shed light on the issues that these people are facing. But also, you know, to show their humanity and to show, um, you know, when it comes to people with disabilities, I want to I want to feature them in a way that is not inspiration porn. That's what we like to say. Right. Like, you know, I, I want them to. Yes. Like, I'm sure that many of these stories are inspiring, but we need to, like, figure out a way to to write and tell stories about them that normalize disability. So it's not such a shock to people. So 
I, I started my journalism efforts and, um, you know, throughout my television career, I got my first TV job, uh, I guess like a year or two out of college. And from there, like, I really, I mean, as you know, as someone who used to be in local news, you can't always um, focus on the stories you want to focus on, right? So I'm like also doing, it's a crazy, crazy, chaotic uh, existence. Oh, oh, it is. They, they tell you what you're going to go cover most days. <laughs> yes, exactly. So most days in local TV news, I was covering, you know, whatever breaking news was happening, whatever news of the day was happening. Um, but once I began to really um, grow into myself as a reporter and to learn to stick up for myself and to, um, you know, advocate for the stories I wanted to tell, I ensure, I made sure that I was telling, I was telling mostly stories about the disabled population and just, you know, human interest stories within my community. So, I mean, it led me to winning a Catalyst for Change Award from the Arc of Virginia for all the work that I did with the dis- about and for the disabled community uh, when I was in Richmond. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that was probably, um, it led to, you know, Emmy nominations for work that I did, um, this investigation I did into an assisted living facility where there was a population of disabled elderly and, um, you know, people um, with mental health issues living there. Um, and so, it, you know, I, through my television efforts, I would, when I was, working in TV. I tried as hard as I can every t- every chance I got to tell stories about that particular population and like I said any vulnerable population, but it wasn't until this year um that I started working at for for I'm a contributor for Forbes Women that I was really able to focus. Like that's my beat and I'm able to really just write everything and anything I want. I have full autonomy over my content and so it's it's given me the uh the chance to just tell the stories I want to tell. <laughs> That's very freeing as a journalist to be able to, to tell the stories you want to tell. So that is awesome. But um, so talk about some of those stories then that you're telling and, and you talk about trying to normalize it. So how are you doing that at Forbes now? So uh, every story that I tell, I, I mean, I think there is just a way to write them, right? And there's a way to, to tell a story about, it's like, I w- if I'm telling a story about someone with Down syndrome, I'm going to write it the same way if I was telling someone a story about someone without a disability. It's because I, I view them as, you know, you know, maybe someone with Down syndrome has, you know, maybe they have a, you know, a certain level of, of difficulty that they face each day, different than their non-disabled, uh, you know, peers, but still, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a chance to, to show how this person is a normal person with like the same hopes and dreams. And, you know, they're, they're trying to get along in society just as you are, except they have 10 times more challenges because of the way society views them and the way that society has, you know, lot, we have, there's a lack of accessibility for people with disabilities. So, you know, in my stories, I I've told numerous stories. Um, you know, for example, um, I've told stories about like the one that actually comes to mind first is this young woman with Down syndrome who has become a model and a speaker and is like literally now she's her face and her story is has been seen around the world. Um, And, you know, I want to be able to normalize that. So when you see a model with Down syndrome, it's not some big shock, you know, that it's just, oh, it's another model, you know. And so um, I've done stories. just, I actually started a column uh, called Scene Spotlighting Disability in Hollywood. And so uh, it, with that column specifically is to show the impact the disabled community has had in Hollywood because Hollywood is notorious for leaving the disabled population behind. And 
Um, you know, whether it be not featuring disabled characters in their content to um, when they do feature disabled characters, it's always this, you know, person trying to overcome their disability versus just living with a disability. Um, and then using actors who are non-disabled to play disabled characters. So the whole purpose of this is to show people, whether it be in front of the camera, behind the camera, that they are making, you know, notable contributions to Hollywood in, you know, their various respective uh, positions. And uh, so I've highlighted, you know, actors with disabilities, um, writers, directors, the whole, it's the whole, and like I said, the whole point is to show, look, you can hire someone with a disability and they're not going to be a liability. They are, because that's another misconception that people with disabilities have, are going to be a liability. It's, it's too much, you know, taking a chance on them. And it, that's not, True. <laughs> I mean, and, um, you know, and so, uh, so yeah, so I've highlighted everyone from, um, her name is Shoshana Stern. She's um, a deaf actress. She's been on Grey's Anatomy and several other notable TV shows. Um, you know, I'm, I'm doing a story right now about this woman, Tatiana Lee. She, um, is, has been in like several Apple commercials and she's just become a huge activist in the industry. Um, and so I've, I've just highlighted so many different women who have disabilities but who are succeeding in Hollywood and and but also we talk about in these interviews how can Hollywood improve you know to better their lives and you know hopefully help them book more jobs and and so that you know the whole point of that again is to make it so hiring someone with disability isn't a big deal which is going to lead me right into my next question so you you set that up so perfectly for me is what what do you what is it that people don't understand about the disabled community I think that there's so much. I, I think that non-disabled people, um, you know, especially if they don't know someone with a disability, there's just this this misconception, this stereotype that they're unable to do anything, um, that they're a liability, you know, and so, which is just far, far from the truth. And, um, it, you know, and then there's also just the way that our society perceives disability, you know, instead of trying to help improve the lives of people with disabilities, um, you know, by creating an accessible society, it's like the opposite that happens and you have to constantly fight um, just to be, just to be given just the same rights as everyone else. And so, you know, from my experience as someone who has a disabled sister, who has disabled friends, who advocates for people with disabilities, I mean, it's like, you know, and, and I'll just give a, a kind of a, an anecdote to make it to help further people's understanding, you know, people who are non-disabled often look at wheelchairs and they think like, you know, the, the term wheelchair bound or they're bound to this, like this is a, it's a negative. From my experience and from people I've spoken to who use wheelchairs, it is a, it is a mobility aid. It, it is a, a positive in their lives. It is something that helps them, um, you know, live a full life. Their wheelchair is everything to them. And so, um, you know, trying to change that view of, you know, mobility aids or something, it's a negative, you know, because you can't do something to this wheelchair is providing me access. So I can do something, you know, and so um, there's just there's so many misconceptions and stereotypes. And it's, I think, honestly, what really needs to happen is a society overhaul of our attitudes. I mean, every person I talk to who is in the disability community, they are often, it's not their disability that is the problem and the concern. It is the attitudes of pe and people's behavior towards their disability. And so if we can change the way people view disability and, um, you know, the attitude towards surrounding what being disabled means, then we can change society. We'll be right back after this short break. 
Did you know isolation was a big problem even before this pandemic struck? People from all walks of life were feeling isolated prior to being told to quarantine away from each other. The Women's Fund of the Oshkosh Area Community Foundation is working to educate people about isolation and how it can be just as dangerous as smoking in some cases. To learn more, visit women.oshkoshareacf.org. Welcome back. So in your opinion, society is really the problem. It's not, um, it, it's society needs to change in order to be more accepting. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, it's, it's just the, it's the attitudes of people, you know, their views of disability that are inhibiting people with disabilities, but also, I mean, just inhibiting progress in society, um, you know, and, and, and that's why, that's why, I mean, the ADA was enacted 30 years ago this year, and still there are buildings that are not ADA accessible, and still there are attitudes towards people with disabilities that, you know, are archaic and just, you know, unreasonable. And so um, there's just so much that needs to be done. And actually, one of the stories I did, I, I found this really interesting, um, was about the 30th anniversary of the ADA. And so I interviewed several people, and, and one of the people I interviewed was actually one of the original um, uh, representatives who um, created the bill that was eventually passed by, uh, you know, George H.W. Bush. And so um, something that he said, his name is um, Rep. Tony Colho, now he's retired, um, but he said that, you know, there's always been this kind of talk in the disabled community of how there's more that needs to be done, um, which is very, very true. And, uh, you know, we need to reopen the ADA, we need to create like an ADA 2.0, basically, to kind of like help close the gaps that there currently are. But something he said that really stuck out to me is that the fear, especially when, you know, the last four years with Trump in office, um, that if they opened the ADA, they would just, it would just be gutted. And so really right now, lawmakers have been, from what he said, they've been trying to kind of like skirt under the radar so the ADA stays intact. Like, so basically like we have what we have and, you know, if Biden is elected and if, you know, someone who will improve and, and change and, um, well, I should just say improve on the, you know, current ADA bill, um, then we'll, you know, put it up and, and, you know, hope that it can be improved. But until there's uh, people in power who can really do something about that, I guess the fear was that the Trump administration would just gut the ADA and take away rights. And so, um, so right now, like they're just basically waiting to see if it, and Biden has a very, um, extensive disability policy. And so uh, he is really working on inclusion uh, for people with disabilities in society. And so what this um, congressman said, former congressman was just basically like, we want to keep the ADA as it is. And then once there's someone in power who will help us improve on it, then we will put, you know, we'll, we'll put it back on the table. But until then, we just kind of got to keep it out of, you know, out of sight, out of mind. So nothing happens to it. That's kind of a scary place to be in a holding pattern out of fear. Yeah, that's and I think that's uh, the reality for so many people across the country right now, whether you're have a disability, whether you're an immigrant, whether you're, you know, a woman. So, um, you know, given, you know, with this interview that people are hearing from you today and then the stories that you tell in Forbes, what is the thing if you could highlight the one thing you want readers and people and listeners to take away from these stories that you're telling? What would that be? I mean, it's education, right? Like that's why that's why I do this. It's to hopefully provide some sort of insight and education into a community um, to people who, you know, I hope that you know I can influence someone who might not know what 
you know, disability, they know what disability is, but, you know, not really have any insight into that community. I hope I am able to educate them. Um, and so, and I'll give you actually an example of, you know, what has happened that, well, let me, let me backtrack. This is exactly this, what this anecdote is, is exactly what I hope for um, when I put a story out there. So I wrote a story after George Floyd's death, um, I think back several months ago about uh, how black uh, moms of children with disabilities live with twice the fear. So they're not only fearful for their children because of the, their skin color, but they're also fearful for their children uh, because of their disability, specifically when it comes to police encounters. And so I wrote this story, I interviewed three mothers, put it out there. And a day or two later, I heard from, I got an email from a woman I didn't know. And she, in the email, essentially, she wrote, um, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something along the lines of, you know, I'm a, I'm a woman, I'm white, I live in a upper class suburban neighborhood, I have three children, perfectly healthy, I have no disabled people in my family. I have never thought of this perspective that you wrote about in this article. And I thank you so much for educating me. And so for me, yeah, that had to be amazing. <laughs> yes. Like, I was like, this is why I do it, right? You know, this is why I, I hope to reach people who, you know, they don't necessarily, they might not have the same experiences as someone with a disability, but through my stories, they've learned something. And uh, hopefully, you know, that woman went on to teach her kids about disability and, and maybe she taught her, you know, ta told her friend about my story and then it got passed around and, you know, and hopefully I was able to educate multiple people. But if I can at least educate one person with my stories, you know, I, I feel like I've done my job. Oh, yeah. And you got to know, too, like just because you heard from one, how many others read it that you didn't hear from, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. Does your sister being the catalyst for all this, does she know? Does she know what you're doing? And does she have any thoughts on this? So my sister, um, so she's 37, but uh, she mentally has, um, you know, the mind of, of a child. Um, and so she wouldn't necessarily understand. Okay. Um, but I think that she understands, you know, through my love and, you know, my adoration of her that, you know, I fight for her and, um, you know, I hope she does. I hope she understands in her own way. Well, what about your mom? You know, she, she obviously knows what you're doing. That's got to be touching for her. <laughs> oh yeah. My mom is like, my mom is every day telling me how proud she is. And, you know, she just, I don't know. I think that my mom, you know, my mom was a single mom too. And so life was kind of crazy. Uh, you know, she was raising two little girls, one who was severely disabled. Um, and so I think that, you know, you just don't know how that's going to happen, what's going to happen, right? You don't know if you're, if the non-disabled sibling, what's going to happen if that person is going to kind of what you talked about in the beginning, get mad or angry or, you know, over just because their sibling might get more attention than them or whatever, you know, it might be. Um, but I think because I kind of went the opposite way and it just, you know, wanted to empower my sister and, and others like her. Um, I know that my mom is extremely proud. <laughs> that is awesome. She should be. It's, it's really cool what you're doing. So, you know, I'm talking to you today because there's an event coming up, right? So, you know, your story fits very well with an event taking place in Wisconsin. It is called the Sibling Voices Stories of Hope Program. It's part of the Wisconsin Sibs organization. Can you tell me a little bit about what that is all about and kind of your role with that? Sure. Um, so Wisconsin Sibs, they are a nonprofit that uh, provides services uh, for people with disabilities and their siblings. So, um, you know, trying to connect siblings from around Wisconsin, but also around the country. 
um, so they feel less alone. And uh, this is a fundraising event for them. And uh, they asked me to be their keynote speaker. So I, you know, we, because COVID and life is just crazy this year, um, they had to, normally they do a um, in-person uh, you know, presentation, but everything is online. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm their keynote speaker, you know, um, Harriet Redmond, the executive director and I did a, an interview. And so kind of like what we're doing today where she kind of interviewed me about, you know, my life with, uh, being a sibling. Um, and so, yeah, so that's pretty much what that is. Awesome. And it is like one of their biggest, if not the biggest fundraiser of the year for the Wisconsin's organization. How can people get involved, be a part of this, see you speak? Where, where can people go? Um, I can send you the link. It's, uh, I know that Harriet, um, she's going to be sending out like a, a newsletter and a flyer, but there is a link that you can go to, to sign up. Um, I think, you know, donate a, something to the Wisconsin's and then get access to what will be a, a link that you can sign up for the whole program. Um, but you know, I think the reason I was so touched when they asked me to be a keynote speaker is because, um, you know, growing up, I was the only person I knew with a sibling with a disability. Um, and I often felt very alone, very alone, because there's, there's just something when you meet others who have been through the same experiences as you. Um, I mean, there's just, there's nothing like it. You know, you can, you relate on a level that you just can't relate to with other, you know, with people who have never been through that experience. And so, when you're growing up with a sibling with a disability, you often feel like you're constantly fighting like the world <laughs> um, because like I was an advocate. And so I was an advocate because of the fact that I was just at everywhere I turned, there was something happening that I felt like I had to address. Right. And so, um, and I was doing it by myself. There was no one else who could be there with me to help me. And um, you know, have a, like my mom was my shoulder to cry on, but, it would have been nice to have, you know, someone my age who I could have talked to, who we could have expressed our frustrations and our happiness and just the emotions that go with being a sibling. And so, um, of someone with a disability. And so Wisconsin, when I found out about their organization, I had never heard of anything like that. I mean, just to have an organization specifically for the siblings of people with disabilities is amazing because we are often overlooked and, um, it's, it's not, it's an interesting existence. I'll just, I'll just say that, you know, you, you, because you grow up very early and you become this for me, like I was like, I've always been told I'm an old soul. And I think part of that is just because I had to grow up so fast. You know, I was helping my mom with my sister. I mean, I was, um, I was basically like a second mother, you know? And, uh, so it's, um, you know, having to experience that alone was, um, it would have been nice to have, you know, someone my age who understood me. And so, yeah, so what Wisconsin does is amazing. And they are, you know, uh, providing an outlet for siblings and, and giving um, siblings the chance to meet other siblings and make friends, you know, within the community. And so I was honored, uh, you know, to take part in their, in their fundraising event. <laughs> that is fantastic. And it was an honor to have you on the show today and sharing your story and even talking about this amazing organization. So Allison, thank you for being here on Soul Source. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And if you want to hear more Soul Source, subscribe to the show. We're available wherever you listen to podcasts. If there's something you want us to talk about on the show, we can do that too. We have a Facebook group called the Soul Source Society. It's where we interact with listeners, share special content only seen in that group, talk about shows, get ideas for future podcasts, and overall, we just have a lot of fun. That's Soul Source Society on Facebook. We hope to see you there. 
Soul Source is brought to you by Red Shoes Inc., a leading agency specializing in crisis and strategic communications, media relations, social media, and so much more. To learn more about Soul Source and Red Shoes, visit us at redshoesinc.com.